0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. You're listening to episode 42 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about a possible murder conspiracy, a murder conspiracy that had as its victim the most famous pharaoh of ancient Egypt, King Tut himself. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. You know, without copyright issues, I would play that Steve Martin song, but uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I guess I won't. I won't be able to. Born
1: in Arizona, (laughs) moved to Babylonia—neither of which is true. (laughs) true,
0: (laughs) Go look it up on Apple Music or Spotify. You'll uh, have a have fun with that. So, King Tut. More than thirty-three hundred years ago, the young pharaoh King Tutankhamen reigned in Egypt. He presided over the one of the most crucial periods in Egyptian history, but there's so much mystery surrounding him after his death. His memory was condemned, and later Egyptian rulers like Queen Cleopatra would never have heard of him. His tomb remained undiscovered, and unlike those of other pharaohs, it was never looted by the ancient tomb robbers, but it was rediscovered in 1922, and scientists began to study it and his body, and they got a shock, because it looks like King Tut may have been murdered. And so that's what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Yeah. So King Tut, uh, which a lot of people, in Americans, especially of a certain age, will remember because that famous traveling exhibition uh, to the United States of all of King Tut's various regalia and things from the tomb, I think maybe a lot of people don't know a lot about details about his life. So Mm -hmm. what does does his name mean? What does King Tutankhamen's
1: name mean? So he wasn't born with that name. And we talked about this in the episode on Akhenaten, Egypt's uh, heretic pharaoh. So Akhenaten was a worshiper of Aten which was the solar disk. That was his version of monotheism. And so he didn't want names of other gods in the names of his children. And so when King Tut was born, his name was Tutankhaten. Tutankhaten. And that meant the living image of Aten. So it's like you got this kid, he's the living image of Aten. And so that isn't the name we know him by, because after he became pharaoh, he returned to the worship of the traditional gods, and he changed his name to Tutankhamun. Amun is the hidden creator god. And so he flipped from Aten to Amun. And that's why we know him as Tutankhamun. Actually, pharaohs had five names, though, and this will be important later. Uh, They also had a secret name, and everybody had a secret name. And like you and your mom knew it, but it was not in general use because it was believed if someone knew your real name, your secret name, they could manipulate you magically. So it was kept very private. I can only imagine, though, that it must have been used on occasion by mothers. You know (laughs) how uh, even in our society, Mothers will use your full name, and it's like John Henry Newman. Get in here right now, (laughs) and and I can only imagine that Egyptian mothers would be like Horus is pleased. Get in here right now, (laughs) and it would have a kind of magical effect on the kid. It suddenly used my real name.
0: Don't tell anybody else that bully at school. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but pharaohs, as part of their reign, they had five names. Uh, They had the first one was known as their Horus name. Was connected with the god Horus. The second was known as their Nebti name. The third was known as their Golden Horus name. Then they had their, what was known as their Pranomen, or their first name, and then their son of Ra name. And so Tutankhamen was our guy's son of Ra name. But he also had these other four public names, and his Pranomen, or his first name, was Nebheperere, which means Lord of the Forms of Ra or Lord of the Forms of Re, one of the solar deities. And that's going to become important later. So remember, Nebheperere is also one of his names.
0: Okay. So what do we know
1: about King Susan He was not raised in Thebes. That's modern Luxor, which was the traditional capital at this time. Instead, he was raised at the city of Akhetaten, which was we know today as Amarna. It's a ruin. But it was where his father Akhenaten had like gone to the desert to build a new city that would be Egypt's new capital dedicated to Aten. And so that's where he that's where he was born. That's where he grew up. When his father died, he became king and he reigned for around nine years. According to the standard chronology, it was between thirteen thirty-two BC and thirteen twenty-three BC, and uh, this was during what's known as the Eighteenth Dynasty, which is part of the New Kingdom in in Egypt. You had Egyptian history is divided into several periods: the the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom are three of the main ones. And so, the Eighteenth Dynasty, when King Tut reigned, is in is in The 18th dynasty in the New Kingdom, it's the peak of Egyptian civilization. And even though this is, you know, 1323 BC, so it's 3,300 years ago from our perspective, Egyptian history had already been going on for 1,700 years by this point. It had already risen and fallen twice. So this is the third rise of Egyptian civilization. And this period, the 18th dynasty, is really when it's at its peak, but things are starting to go bad.
0: Okay, what do we know about this decline of the of the Egyptian civilization in this
1: this third period? Well, his father Akhenaten had become this crazy religious leader from the Egyptian perspective and he was neglecting the affairs of government, he was neglecting military affairs, he was causing big problems and he didn't reign very long. He only reigned we we know he reigned into his 17th year but then he he died he still would have been a fairly fairly young man at this point um and so tut became pharaoh when he was around 9 years old tut's mother we have her mummy and she's known as the younger lady because there's more than one female mummy that was found and and but genetically we know it's the younger lady and it's possibly nefertiti Nefertiti was uh, Akhenaten's main wife, and she's the one you see the famous elegant-looking bust of a woman, her of an Egyptian woman, her, her face and her neck, and she's really elegant. Um, that's Nefertiti. And so if you look at the younger lady, the mummy of the younger lady, she's got the same kind of neck and jawline, and it looks like it's Nefertiti. In any event, the younger lady was genetically, we know the mother, so Tut's mother was both Akhenaten's wife and his full sister. So there was incest in the royal family, which was common at this time in the Egyptian royal family, because you had to marry a royal, especially if you were going to be pharaoh, you had to marry the main royal woman. That's going to become important. And this incest led to birth defects, which people, you know, when we did the Akhenaten episode, we noted that there's this weird art. Pictures of the pharaoh and his family don't look like other Egyptian art. And and people have wondered is it because he gave them more, per, the, the artists more permission to describe them or to, to depict them the way they really looked? And are these birth defects that we're seeing because they look weird? And it, indeed, that does seem to be part of the explanation for why the Amarna era art is weird in terms of Tut's mummy. And unfortunately, his mummy is not in very good condition. Actually, part of that is because when they buried it, they poured these magical oils all over it before they sealed up the uh, sarcophagus, and it caused a fire, and it it burned the outside of his mummy. And then the oils stuck the mummy to the bottom of the sarcophagus. And so when, they, when Carter found his tomb in the 1920s, They were trying to get the mummy out, but it stuck to the bottom of the sarcophagus. And they tried like putting it out in the sun to see if the if the sun would heat the oils to loosen them up. And it didn't. And they eventually they didn't publish this fact. But what they and we wouldn't do this today because mummies, we are too valuable to do this to today. But back then, they didn't realize mummies contain a lot of information. And so to get the mummy out, they actually cut him in half. Oof and uh, and then prized the two parts out. So the mummy is not in great condition. But it's also, by the way, still there in the tomb since they since they found him in the tomb. That's where they left him. His body is not in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It's actually still in the tomb. But based on studies that have been done, he had a slightly cleft palate. He may have had mild scoliosis, which is a deformation of the spine. Uh, He definitely had a deformed left foot that included bone necrosis. The bones in his left foot were dying and had, had died. Some of them had died. There was spreading necrosis in his foot, which would have caused a big problem with him walking and standing. And it's probably why he was buried with lots and lots of walking sticks, which had been used. It was common to have walking sticks, but not this freaking many of them. <laughs> and they are scuffed up in a way we know he actually used them. It is possible that he had other genetic illnesses and some other deformities have been proposed, but they haven't been established conclusively. In any event, Tut was the last of his bloodline. And so the dynasty, it had two more pharaohs, but it only lasted, um, you know, uh, the previous, I mean, previously the dynasty had lasted for 200 years. But between Tut and his successor, it only went on for about thirty. Then the the Eighteenth Dynasty finished.
0: So when when Akhen
1: Akhenaten died, mm-hmm. how did Tut become pharaoh? As Janet would say, unclear. <laughs> some have suggested that his mother Nefertiti may have reigned briefly. Also, we have some indication that a guy named Smenkhare may have reigned briefly, and. That's alternately thought to have either been his brother or another name for Nefertiti. But if either of those people reigned, it was very briefly. And so you have this situation where we need a new pharaoh and Akhenaten has only one surviving son, and that's Tut, and he's nine years old. So he's got to become pharaoh. But how do you become pharaoh in ancient Egypt? By marrying the main royal woman. So who's the main royal woman? Well, it's Akhenaten, his sister, who's like, uh, I think, a year older than him. So he gets married off to his sister, and that's how he becomes Pharaoh.
0: So what do we know about this sister with the very long name that I can't
1: pronounce? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so she's going to be crucial to our story because whoever marries her becomes Pharaoh. And at first, that's Tut. Her parents were also Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Uh, she was about the same age as Tut. We have her mummy. It's, it was not, from what we can tell, given a distinguished burial, though. It was found in a tomb called KV-21. That's King's Valley, tomb number 21. And it was one of two female mummies that were found there. So her mummy is known as KV-21A. The other is KV-21B. She and Tut, after they were married, they had two... She she got pregnant twice. She was not able to carry either pregnancy to term. One of the unborn children, they were both female, one of the unborn baby girls survived till about eight months, so almost ready to be born, and then miscarried. The other only made it to five months and miscarried. And we know this because these two unborn baby girls were mummified and buried in King Tut's tomb. So they would be with their dad in the afterlife. Scholars have now studied these two mummies and the children had incest-related birth defects. It may well be part of why they were miscarried. One of them had Marfan syndrome, which is a disorder where the bones in your body grow at in, a, in inappropriate ways. And so, so all of this inbreeding was really taking a toll And we may have discovered a family secret that was not known at the time. DNA testing, assuming that the people who've done the testing are right about this, it looks like Akhenaten was not Akhenaten's biological father. Mm. It looks like Nefertiti may have had an affair. As the sand turns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like sand through the hourglass, so, is, so are the days of ancient Egypt. So that's some basic information about Akhenaten. and Paten. And so
0: if that were true, then she would be Tut's half-sister, technically, half-sister, biological. right.
1: But okay. it was thought to be his full sister. Right. So why was King Tut's reign crucial uh, in the history of Egypt? After Akhenaten died, there was an attempt to get things back on track because... Um, You know, he'd really let things degenerate. And so there was a big effort to to get things back the way they were back on a good footing. And so in year three of King Tut's reign, he rejected Atenism, the worship of just the Aten. He returned to the old religion and the old ways of doing things. He moved from Amarna, where he may have never even left. And he moved back to the uh, traditional capital Thebes or Luxor today. And there is a big celebration of all of this. You know, they're welcoming back their pharaoh. They're welcoming back the support of the official religion that everybody really wanted the whole time. One of the things they did was they they put up a what's called a stella. A stella is a a stone slab that has a rounded top. It kind of looks like a tombstone, except instead of what you normally find on a tombstone, they would write detailed texts that would commemorate events like the famous Rosetta Stone that let us crack the Egyptian hieroglyphic writing system. That's an example of one of these. And so kings would and priests would put these up to commemorate important events. And so when King Tut reestablished the traditional religion, they put up what's called the Restoration Stella. And it talks about how now everything's great. We've got the old gods back. But it also talks about the time of Akhenaten and what it was like then from their religious perspective. And it says the temples of the gods and goddesses were in ruins, their shrines were deserted and overgrown, their sanctuaries were non existent, and their courts were used as roads. The gods turned their backs upon this land. If anyone made a prayer to a god for advice, he would never respond. And so you can see there are people still praying to the gods secretly. They're still worshiping the gods, but they're not getting the responses they want, and they're blaming it on Atenism. So they really hated Atenism. They really wanted the old religion back. And so as part of that, uh, uh, Tutank Aten changed his name to Tutank Amun. And so does his sister. Ankason Patan means her life is Aten, or it might mean causing the Aten to live. But she now changes her name in the same way that King Tut does. So she becomes Ankason Amun. Her life is Amun, or causing Amun to live. And so this is the signal they've, and that's the name she's famous for today. And this is a signal the old religions back and the new pharaoh and his queen support it.
0: We said that at this point, Tut was like we're between nine and 12 years old or something. Was this
1: his decision making? Did he decide to do all these things? Yeah, no, he was like nine and he was too young. The The power behind the throne was his vizier, who was a former official of Akhenaten named I. You'll see his name either spelled A-Y or A-Y-E. It gets spelled both ways. But I is the real guy who's running Egypt at this point. And Tutankhamun now is a figurehead. Incidentally, I is going to become pharaoh after Tutankhamun, but he's only going to reign about four years. All right. So, what events happened? What occurred during Tut's reign? One of the things that Ak- 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 Akhenaten had neglected was military affairs. And so, that's one of the things, in addition to religion, that gets put back. We have records of Tutankhamun. Conducting battles, one is a war with the Nubians. The Nubians lived to the south of Egypt, and they had a lot of gold. And so, as I mentioned previously, the Egyptian culture worked kind of like the um, kind of like the Old. They <laughs> they would march into places, conquer it, and take everything that wasn't nailed down. And that was considered part of Pharaoh's job. They they had a very zero sum. Approach to economics. So the only way to get something was to, you know, was for someone else not to have it. And so they would periodically they would go down to Nubia, and at times the Nubians were allies, at times they were vassals, but then they would get rebellious, and so they'd go down, they'd beat up on the Nubians, and they'd take their stuff. Eventually, though, the Nubians would take over Egypt. Mm -hmm. So there's a dynasty later on where the Nubians get theirs back the Nubians actually when Egypt is weak, they come in and take over. So so it's not all one way in this relationship. There's also a record of a battle at Kadesh. Kadesh is it's kind of in the Holy Land, if you think about where that is in relation to Egypt. Um, So you've got in the south, you've got Egypt, in the east you've got the Holy Land, and in the north, above the Mediterranean Sea, you've got modern Turkey. Well, the Turkey, modern Turkey was at the time the home of the Hittites. They called their land Hatti or Hattie Land. And so they were the Hittites. And they were one of the main traditional enemies of Egypt at this point. And they would fight because they didn't the Egyptians were terrible sailors. They they could sail up and down the Nile, but that was incredibly easy because to go one way you just you just go with the with the flow. And to go the other way you put up your sails. But they couldn't do what like the Greeks could do or could later do, which was to cross the Mediterranean and go fight sea battles other places. And so they would end up warring with the Hittites like in the Holy Land. It was kind of a buffer zone between the two empires. And so one of the important cities there was named Kadesh or Kadesh. And the opposing king of the Hittites at this time was a guy named Shupiuliuma. And Shupi Uliuma was a target of Tutak Aman. So like he, his forces and Shupi Uliuma's forces fought at Kadesh. And that's going to be important because Shupi Uliuma is going to come back into our story later on.
0: All right. So then Tut is now the war leader and picking up these responsibilities that his father had let, le- left behind. But you mentioned he had, you know, physical deformities. His left foot was deformed. So did he lead these battles himself? Well,
1: we have pictures of him in a chariot, but that's a traditional thing that they do in Egyptian art. You can't always take that as being accurate. The pharaoh always has to be depicted as the mighty conquering military hero and always in excellent physical shape, no matter what was the truth. Also, by the way, the Egyptians never lost battles. They just (laughs) fought them closer and closer to home as they retreated (laughs) or just won them closer and closer to home at least that's the story in the artwork. So you can't really take that too seriously. His tomb did have uh, armor and bows and arrows and military equipment, stuff like that. It's possible that he was trained in archery, but it's really hard to see him leading a battle in a chariot, uh, given his physical deformities. Most likely, uh, the battles were led by uh, his general, his main general, who was a guy named Horemheb. And Horemheb is going to also become Pharaoh after I, So he's going to come back into the story, too. Hmm. So how old was Tut Ta- when he died? He was around 18 years old. And we know that because of the bones in the mummy, the ends of your bones, what are called the epiphyses don't finally harden up until you're around 18 or 20 years old. Also, your molars come in at about that time in your life. And so based on the state of King Tut's bones and molars, it's like he died around age 18. So quite young. And then what happened after he died? As I mentioned, the vizier, I took control and he reigned about four years. Then Horemheb, the general, became pharaoh next. And he conducted the damnatio memorare, or the condemnation of memory, over the last few pharaohs, especially I. It seems that for some reason, Horemheb really did not like I. But he also would deface the monuments of Akhenaten, the heretic, and he would, he would deface monuments of King Tut, and he would basically carve out their names, you know, the king's name because it was sacred, it was written in a cartouche, which is a magical circle to protect the king's name. That's what that circular shape is for. It's called a cartouche because that's the French word for cartridge, like a cartridge you put in a rifle. So when Napoleon's soldiers came over in the early 1800s and conquered Egypt, Napoleon also did the first archaeological and botanical, first scientific study of Egypt. And so his soldiers would see the cartouches in the carvings. They couldn't read the carvings, but they said, hey, look at these cartouches here. And so that's how they look at these cartridges. Here. <laughs> and so that's how they got their name. And but really, they were a magical circle to protect the pharaoh's name. And so what you would do if you wanted to damn a previous pharaoh uh, is cut out his name from the cartouches. On his monuments and carve your own name onto it, and so you would take credit and like displace him magically from his position. So he was erasing them from history, right? It was like that whole bad Amarna thing. It's like that's just erased. I'm not their successor. I'm the successor. of This is Horum Heb's attitude. I'm not the successor of I and Tut and Akhenaten. I'm the successor of of the of the good guy who preceded them. And so he, he would cut out their names from the monuments, but he really seemed to have it in for eye. Unfortunately, Horemheb didn't have any sons, and so he was the end of the 18th dynasty. And after him, they picked a, an old guy who didn't reign for very long, but the reason they seemed to have picked him was because he had sons, and so he could found a new dynasty. And his name was Ramesses the 1st the founder of the 19th dynasty that also includes Ramesses the 2nd who may be the pharaoh of the exodus or maybe not
0: so that sort of sets it in time for me the uh, right. when this may have been okay right so that's the background that's a very that's a good comprehensive look at the background so we have this mystery of of how did he uh, die so
1: what are the theories about his death He obviously died of something. The first theory is he died of because he and he died young, so this wasn't old age natural causes. This was something special. One proposal is he died of a disease. Early on, there was a proposal he may have died of tuberculosis. More recently, there's been a proposal that he died of malaria. On the other hand, he may not have died of a disease. He may have died of an accident an injury of some kind. Now, he wasn't stabbed or anything like that. He wasn't killed in in battle and like from a sword or an arrow or anything that would show on the mummy if he had been. But it's been proposed that he may have fallen from a chariot or he may have been hit by a chariot or he may have fallen because of his deformities and the bone necrosis in his left foot. So it could have been a fall of some or a collision of some kind that killed him. And then there's the theory that he was murdered.
0: Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, our twin perspectives, is there much of a faith perspective to the
1: theories? Uh, not in not in this case. What the Egyptians did or didn't believe about religion and what it had, how it may or may not have affected the Bible, we talked about that in the Akhenaten episode But ultimately, whether or not Tut was murdered doesn't have an impact on our fate.
0: So then in the reason perspective, uh, with the different
1: theories, is there anything everyone agrees on about Tut's death? Everyone agrees he died suddenly. And that's indicated by several factors. One of them is the fact he's so young. But beyond that, he's got this little small tomb that you would, it's much smaller than you would expect for a pharaoh. And that suggests it was like not originally meant for him. And they just had to kind of grab it because it was there and they needed to bury him quickly. It typically in Egypt, you got buried about 70 days after you died. If, if you were a pharaoh or a high official, someone who got mummified, because they had this process, it, it took 70 days to turn you into a mummy. They would do certain initial preparations, and then they would bury you temporarily in the embalmers' wood in a substance called natron. Natron is a, is a natural substance that occurs in Egypt. It's part potash, part baking soda, and part salt and it just they just have pits of natron and so they would they take the natron they'd bury the body in the natron and they'd let the natron you can imagine you know how baking soda soaks up moisture well that's what the natron would do so the goal was to get as much moisture out of your body as possible so you would be mummified and your body wouldn't rot and so they'd put you in the natron they'd after about 30 days they'd take you out And then they do more preparations. I forget exactly at what stage they removed your organs. They may have done that first. And famously, they took the brain out through the nose. Yeah. But not in the way everybody thought. It turns out Bob Breyer, an Egyptologist today, did a a, a modern mummification to figure out how they made Egyptian mummies using only tools that would have been available to the ancient Egyptians. And everybody had thought, because we had this tool, it looks kind of like a coat hanger, And they thought you shove it up the nose and you take the brain out piece by piece. But it doesn't work. The brain is too soft to be taken out that way. And so what they figured out is they would they put the tool up the nose and swish it around to liquefy the brain, then flip the body over and let the brain drain out.
0: I hope I hope you aren't eating your lunch,
1: folks. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just have to put that in because I know little boys listen to this podcast. Yes. And that's the coolest thing ever for little boys. Yes, to know.
0: my sons are probably squealing with delight at the moment. <laughs> yeah.
1: in, any, in any event, they would take you, the organs out. They put you in the natron for about 30 days. Then they would like Get and you'd still be flexible enough, they could put you in position. So like royal mummies have their arms crossed on their chests. And so they get you in position, they they'd put you back in the natron for another 40 days. But then after this is complete, they bury you and they have some ceremonies. They actually had a special lunch, kind of like we have receptions after funerals. They'd have a special lunch, they'd do a sacrifice and then they'd put you in the tomb. We actually have the stuff from when they buried king tut when they had the the, the special meal uh, as they were burying him they wore these like flowered collars and things and they actually found that stuff before they found the tomb and one guy thought this is this is these are artifacts from his tomb later it turned out no it's 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 stuff from his funeral reception but it's kind of cool we have like the chicken bones and stuff or the bird bones from his funerary meal that they ate oh wow and the flowered collars they were wearing to commemorate the burial and stuff. In any event, they buried him in the tomb. But because he died so suddenly, only one room of the tomb has illustrations. Normally, there'd be illustrations all over everything. And they would be carved in the walls, you know, like depicting the king in the afterlife and stuff like that to show the gods what you want to have happen to him in the afterlife. But they didn't have time to do all that carving. And so only one room has illustrations and they're not carved, they're painted. So they just painted them straight on the walls. Normally, they'd carve them and then paint them. They didn't have time for the carving, so they just painted them. And they didn't have time to get all of the ritual objects they needed to use ready. Like, for example, uh, you may have heard of canopic jars. These are jars that they would put the internal organs of the deceased in to prepare them for the afterlife, and they had magical functions. Well, they didn't have time to get canopic jars made for King Tut. So what they did was they took Smenkare's canopic coffins. Yeah, had these little canopic coffins that they had made, and they used them instead. And so, so those were in King Tut's tomb, even though they were originally used by his apparently brother or perhaps mother, Smenkare. So all of this, the young age, the small tomb, the need to bury quickly, and it was so quickly they didn't have time to carve anything or to get all of the objects ready. It all points to some kind of sudden, unexpected death, which is consistent with the illness theory, with the accident theory, and with the murder theory.
0: So what can we say, let's approach these three theories one at a time, what can we say about the idea he died from a disease?
1: You'll recall that early on, a theory was that he may have died of tuberculosis. This is a common disease in the ancient world. You know, it, it made your lungs go bad. But we've now disproved that. He did not die of tuberculosis. He doesn't have the right. His body does not display signs of tuberculosis. It's been proposed that he died of malaria. And you will find some people saying he died of malaria. But the thing is, and, and there is some evidence that can support that. It, they've done tests that have indicated on his DNA, because whenever you get a virus like the malaria virus, it the way it replicates is it gets into your DNA and it use, it hijacks your cells to make more of itself. And that's why viruses are not considered alive technically, because they require the machinery of a living cell to duplicate. They can't do it on their own. And so they have checked his DNA and they say they found strains of multiple forms of malaria. So it looks like he had malaria several times in his life, which was, you know, not uncommon. There are mosquitoes, especially in watery areas like down around the Nile, and it floods once a year and becomes a marsh, and the mosquitoes are going to go crazy from that. And so people would get malaria. That's incidentally why people in certain areas that were marshy and like in Africa and in Italy, of all places, have sickle cell anemia. Because it turns out sickle cell anemia, even though it's a net negative for you in most circumstances, it actually partially protects you from malaria. That's why sickle cell anemia is common in populations in areas where there are malarial mosquitoes. But apparently he didn't have that protection. And so he looks like Tut got malaria several times and he could have died of it. But we don't have proof since he had it several times. We don't know that he did die of it. That's just speculation. So then what can we say about this theory that he died from an accident? If he did, it probably wasn't a fall from a chariot because he probably didn't ride a chariot, given the problems with his foot. I mean, the chariots were not stable. In fact, the floor of a chariot, the thing you stand on, was not actually a platform made of wood or anything like that. The chariot would have a wooden frame, but the platform you're standing on, they needed it to absorb shock because they didn't have really good shock absorbers for those wooden wheels. And so they needed it to bounce up and down and absorb shock and be flexible. And so the platform you stood on actually was woven from leather straps And so you can imagine this guy, he's got to use a walking cane to get around to stand. And he's got this foot with dead bones in it. He's got bone necrosis down there in his deformed foot. It's very hard to imagine him riding in a chariot. He could, though, have been hit by a chariot, or he could have fallen or been pushed Mm -hmm. in some other way. In fact, someone, you know, there's that one theory that they looked at the way his bones are broken. Now, this is. Kind of a problem because remember how they had to cut his mummy up to pry it out of there? Well, that may have caused some of the damage to the bones. And it, it does look like he's got one severe fracture severing his left leg just above the knee. And there are claims that he would have received that within a few days before his death. So that could be an indication of of, of accident. I'd have to check, but it also might be consistent with. Injuries after his death, you know, like when they pried his mummy out of there, in any event there there is one video that we'll have a link to that tries to reconstruct how he might have been struck by a chariot to cause the injuries that we see and you can see like the chariot plows into him and he goes over the wheel, and this is one proposal for how he could have died, and it's possible it's also consistent with murder. Someone could have said, "Hey, can you drive that chariot over him?" Or, hey, I think I'll drive that chariot over him or something like that. So
0: why would anyone come up with this theory? Why would anyone think that he was murdered? Why would this be even a a question?
1: Well, there's three kinds of evidence to be considered. There's evidence from the mummy, from the mummy itself, evidence from the tomb where he was buried, and evidence from the records of the Hittites. Hmm. So what was the evidence from the mummy? In 1979, there was a professor. He was an anatomist from the University of Liverpool named R.G. Harrison, and he did X-rays on the uh, on the tomb. Now, they they hadn't done that previously, or at least they hadn't done them in this level of detail. But they they took a portable X-ray machine out to the tomb, and and they they did this. He, in analyzing the X-rays, said it looks like he's got a bump here on the back of his head. That quote could have been caused by a blow to the back of the head, close quote, leading to a hemorrhage, leading to death. Unfortunately, Professor Harrison never published his findings in a scientific journal. And so this idea kind of got forgotten for, uh, for several decades. But then the Egyptologist I mentioned who makes mummies or who's made a mummy, Bob Breyer, he was watching a TV show that had an interview. Some old footage, I guess, of Professor Harrison talking about this and noting that there was this bump on the back of the head that could have led to his death. And that got Bob Breyer to thinking. And he started thinking about other stuff that he knew, including stuff from the tomb and stuff from the Hittite records. And he started to think this could be a murder. Now, one of the things that is kind of a red herring. In this. And Breyer points this out. He, he, he's done a, a series for the great courses on the history of ancient Egypt. I've, I highly recommend it. I recommend recommended every time we talk about ancient Egypt because it's so good. And he has a lecture just on the murder theory. One of the things he points out is that there's been kind of a red herring in the discussion because in the x-rays of King Tut, of his skull, there's a little piece of bone that you can see. There's a bone fragment in there that is detached. And some people have focused on that bone and said, but this couldn't have been what killed him because it had to be postmortem. And it's like, no, duh, we're not claiming that bone fragment is from the blow because they took out after he died, they took out the brain. And then they they cauterized the interior of the skull by pouring hot resin in it twice. And this bone fragment is not stuck in the resin. And so that means this bone fragment had to be in there, had to get in there after the resin had hardened. So this bone fragment is clearly not related to the murder. It may have been caused like by damage when they pried the mummy out or something like that. So if you hear people fixating on the little bone fragment and saying it can't be related to his murder... The answer is no duh. That's not the evidence for the murder. Subsequently, it has been claimed that the the bump that Professor Harrison found on the back of the brain or on the back of the skull would not have been sufficient to kill him. That's the claim. So it's claimed that that's been disproved, but that's part of what that's what got Bob Breyer's thought process started, that this to look at the other evidence, and see, does that point to murder?
0: This bit of evidence, is bump, does not, whether it's debunked or not, doesn't disprove
1: murder. Murder one way or another. It's just what got the ball rolling. OK. So then what is the evidence that we have from the tomb itself? Well, there are a couple of odd things about the tomb that we haven't mentioned yet. I mean, it's already odd because it's like only illustrations in one room and they're only painted. They're not carved. Well, guess what's not in the paintings? Anka Sanaman, the queen, she is not there. Tut is there in the tomb and he's in the paintings. The baby mummies are there in the tomb. They're not in the paintings, but, you know, they were never born. But you normally, if you have a pharaoh or even just a high official, he paints his wife. And in the case of a pharaoh, he paints the chief wife. She's the one he married to become pharaoh. She deserves a place on the tomb. He wants to be with her for eternity. So, you put her on the walls to show the gods this is what we want in the afterlife. Well, Ankhusonamen is not there. So, the person who ordered the tomb paintings did not order a picture of Ankhusonamen. And since we know who was in control at the time and who became pharaoh, it was I. That means I did not want Ankhusonamen. In the tomb paintings. He didn't want her to be with Tut for all eternity. Why? Because he was going to marry her so he could become Pharaoh of Egypt. And we know that was his intention because that leads to the second odd thing about the tomb. I is in the tomb paintings. And in fact, he's shown performing what's called the opening of the mouth ceremony. Uh, the idea was you took you took the mummy. And you had this special magical implement, and you touched it to the mouth of the mummy to give the mummy breath so that the mummy could eat and speak and breathe in the next world. So that's the function of the opening of the mouth ceremony. And its eye depicts himself performing this. And he's dressed in the leopard skin that you would have a high priest wearing while performing his function. So he's got the traditional high priest outfit on. He's also wearing the high royal crown, the special crown that only pharaohs got to wear. So he's depicting himself as pharaoh. And he's got his name written in a cartouche on the walls of King Tut's tomb, which only the kings and queens get to do. So he's depicting himself very clearly as the new pharaoh, despite the fact he was a commoner. And so the only way for him. To become pharaoh was to marry the greatest living royal woman, Anka And if he was already pharaoh by this point, remember, they buried you after like 70 days when the mummification process was complete. So just over two months, this is still a grieving widow. And he's already depicting himself as being pharaoh and thus as being married to her. So he would have had to have married her very, very quickly within that 70 days for him to depict himself like this.
0: So, so why would that be odd? I mean, wouldn't they want to have a new pharaoh as quickly as possible for, you know, the continuity mm. of the of
1: the dynasty? Yeah, absolutely. You would want a new pharaoh very quickly. But we have good evidence that's not what happened. Mm. This is where the records of the Hittites come in.
0: Right, so the Hittites being the enemies of the of Egyptians, what evidence could they have?
1: Uh, that would help us. Well, the main thing is, a do- there are a couple of important documents. The main one is a document called, the, you remember our friend King Shupiuliuma, who fought Tut at, his forces fought Tut at the Battle of Kadesh. I will never forget his name. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's as good as some of the six-syllable names you get in Larry Niven's Ringworld novels, like <laughs> Harlo- Har- Harlo- Prilalar and Kawarek and so forth. Anyway, so there's this document called, and this was common when a king would have reigned and died, like his successor would write the deeds of his father, you know, to commemorate his father's reign. And so we have this document called The Deeds of Shupiliuma, as told by his son, Mercilus II. So we have this document that his son and successor wrote. And he says this, this is a quote, while my father was down in the country of Kharkimish, he sent Lupaki and Tarhunta Zalma forth to the country of Amka. So they went to attack Amka and brought deportees, cattle, and sheep back before my father. So, typical military raid go get stuff and bring it back, you know, slaves and animals and stuff. But when the people of Egypt heard of the attack on Amka, they were afraid. And since, in addition, their lord, Nibhuria had died. Therefore, the queen of Egypt, who was Dahamunzu, sent a messenger to my father and wrote him thus. And then he quotes from this letter that the widowed queen of Egypt has sent. Now, the question is, who are we talking about here? Which Widowed queen is this? Now I mentioned in the Akhenaten episode that some people have said this is Nefertiti. But we're going to see that's not plausible. One reason is listen to the name of the king that they give, Nibhuruya. That sounds like Tut's prenomen, his first name, neb Nebheperure. So listen to the sound of the two words, Nibhuruia, Nebheperure. You can see how that sounds like just a transliteration of Nebheperure into Hittite. And so if it had been Nefertiti that was the widowed queen, then Akhenaten would have been the pharaoh and his names don't match up to this. So this is one reason why it's it seems pretty likely I would say almost certain that the king who has died is King Tut because it's a, just a transliterated version of his praenomen. The name they give for the queen, Dahamunzu, is a little harder. That doesn't match up to any of Ankhesenamun's names, but it appears instead to be a transliteration of the Egyptian phrase Tahemet Nesut, which means the king's wife. So if you listen, Dahamunzu. Tehemet Nesut. You got the same consonant types in there in the same sequence. It seems to be a, just a transliteration into Hittite of the king's wife, which is perhaps how Anka signed the letter. Therefore, the dead pharaoh is Tut, and the queen who's writing the letter is Anka just based on the name of Tut that's given. But there's also another reason which we'll talk about as we go further. So what what does the letter say? She says, My husband has died, a son I have not. But to thee, they say, the sons are many. If thou wouldst give me one son of thine, he would become my husband. Never shall I pick out a servant of mine and make him my husband. I am afraid. So this is amazing. I mean, this is unprecedented. You know, the the Hittites are the bad guys. From the Egyptians perspective, Tut, this is like in the U.S., this is like the widow of the U.S. president asking the premier of the Soviet Union to send her a son to marry to become the new president of the United States. (laughs) Okay, right. This is it's that level crazy. And it's all the more so because Tut himself had done battle with King Shupiuliuma's forces at the Battle of Kadesh. And now they're asking Shupi-Uliuma to send one of his sons. So this is just astonishing. And that's part of what suggests that Tut may have been murdered. Because even though I was already depicting himself as Pharaoh in those paintings, he wasn't yet married to Anka As the letter shows, and it took it took time. Remember, they can't just email this. It, it took time to get a courier all the way around to where King Shupiuliuma is to give him this message. And we're actually going to see this went on for months, this correspondence back and forth. He, I, had not married uh, Anka Sanaman. at the time he depicted himself as pharaoh on those tomb paintings. He was being presumptuous of what would happen, and Anka Sanaman is trying to stop it. From happen happening. She says, I do not want to marry a servant of mine, meaning a commoner. And she says she wants to marry a royal, even if it's a foreign royal, even if it's an enemy foreign royal, she wants a royal. And she is also afraid. And she admits it to a foreign potentate. What is she afraid of? Well, it could be she's afraid of being forced to marry someone, but why say that? If you want to, that only indicates there's danger for your son because he's got a rival. It is more plausible, at least somewhat, to say she's afraid for her life because she knew or suspected that Tut had been murdered. So what was Shupiuliuma? Good good for you. (laughs) What was his reaction? Well, according to Mersullis, this is what happened. When my father heard this, he called before he called forth the great ones for counsel, saying, such a thing has never happened to me in my whole life. I was like, that's an understatement. Yeah. So it happened that my father sent forth to Egypt Hattusa Zidi, the chamberlain, with this order. Go and bring thou the true word back to me. Maybe they deceive me. Maybe, in fact, they do have a son of their lord. Bring thou... The true word back to me. This is like Game of Thrones. It's better than that. So, <laughs> this so what, happen- what happened when the Chamberlain came back? What did he say? So according to Myrsalis, but when it became spring, so we've had a change of seasons. This is months later. And thus those tomb paintings, he was not married to her within 70 days. Right. Hattusa Zidi come- came back from Egypt and the messenger of egypt lord hani came with him hmm. so another guy comes back as official egyptian messenger hani had a second letter from ankhsenamen when he came and so in the second letter Sanaman writes and says to shubiyuluma and says why didst thou say they deceive me in that way had i a son i would i have written about my own and my country's shame to a foreign land? Thou didst not believe me and hast even spoken thus to me. He who was my husband has died. A son I have not. Never shall, notice she comes back to the same theme. Mm-hmm. Never shall I take a servant of mine and make him my husband. I have written to no other country. Only to thee have I written. They say thy sons are many, so give me one son of thine. To me he will be husband, but in Egypt he will be king. So, Mersulla says, since my father was kind hearted, he complied with the word of the woman and concerned himself with the matter of a son. Shubuluma said, if he gave a son, though, he might be used as a hostage. So he had this concern. And at that point, the messenger from Egypt, Lord Hani, speaks up. And Hani says, Oh my lord, this is our country's shame. If we had a son of the king at all, why would we have come to a foreign country and kept asking for a lord for ourselves? Nibhuriyuma. Nib Hururia, who was our Lord, died, a son he has not. Notice this is another reason it's not Akhenaten who's died, because he had a son, he had tut. So Nefertiti would have had no reason to write the Hittites for a new son. Our Lord's light, our, our Lord's wife is solitary. We are seeking a son of our Lord for the kingship in Egypt and for the woman our lady we seek him as her husband furthermore we went to no other country only here did we come now o our lord give us a son of thine well, it well,
0: it's, it's fascinating this idea that they she's offering to the hittites basically control of their biggest enemy in egypt yeah. by
1: yeah. this son so what did shupiliuma decide to do well, according to Mersulus, he had an old peace treaty uh, between the Hittites and Egyptians brought out and read to him, and he decided that this would be a good opportunity to reestablish peace between the two nations. So he picked a son. Uh, he decided to send his son Zananza to become the new pharaoh of Egypt. Oh, poor Zananza, because we know that I did become
0: the next pharaoh of Egypt. So something must have gone wrong. What happened to poor Zananza?
1: Unfortunately, we don't have more of the story from this document, but there's another document that tells us what happened. It's also by Mersullus, and it's called The Plague Prayers of Mersullus. And you'll see why it's called that in a minute. According to him, but when my father gave them one of his sons, They killed him as they led him there. Now, this isn't so. This is an unmistakable murder connected with this whole state of affairs. You can wonder about Tut, but this is a murder. And you know that because Prince Zenanza would have been traveling with an armed entourage and a really big one. Sure. Because remember what they're going there for, they're not just escorting him. They're going to partake in the wedding. They're going to be there for his coronation. They're going to uh, have these peace celebrations. No lone assassin or even a group of bandits is going to feel comfortable trying to get this guy. So it would have required a major military action to attack the caravan and kill the prince. And so this is something that would have been ordered by I, who wants to marry Anka Sanaman, it would have been ordered by I and executed by the general Horamab. And notice, these guys are willing to do it, even though killing a prince is kind of a little bit an act of war. <laughs> right. So you can expect a war to result as a, res- as a consequence of what you're doing here. Right.
0: The stakes are high. So, so how did the Hittites react to this action?
1: They had a war. <laughs> According to the plague prayers of Marsalis, my father let his anger run away with him. And I love the picture we get of Shupi Uliuma here. It's like, we're told he's kind-hearted and he gave him a son. But we also have these other little glimpses, like he lets his anger run away with him. And he initially says, nothing like this has happened to me in my entire life. <laughs> You're <laughs> right, You're not right. thinking about it from a historical perspective, just thinking how it impacts him. Anyway, Myrcella says, my father let his anger run away with him. He went to war against Egypt and attacked Egypt. He smote the foot soldiers and the charioteers of the country of Egypt. But when they brought back to the Hattie Land the prisoners which they had taken, a plague broke out among the prisoners and they began to die. This is why it's called the plague prayers of Mersullus. When they moved the prisoners to the Hattie Land, the prisoners carried the plague into Hattiland. From that day on, people have been dying in the Hattie Land. So, these they went to war. This plague got brought back to the homeland and has been killing people up to the time Mersulus is writing. And the plague also killed Shupiuliuma. So, that's how he died. That's why Mersulus became his successor. And that's where the Hittites exit our story. Does this
0: fact that they killed the prince prove that King Tut was also murdered?
1: No, if Tut died of natural causes, then I could have still ordered the the hit on the prince just out of political ambition because he was determined to marry Amun. Also, Horamheb would have, in all likelihood, been willing to go along with this, not just because I is his boss, but because Horamheb has spent a career fighting Hittites. You know, he's not their traditional enemies. He's fought them on behalf of Tut at Kadesh. And he's seen his men and perhaps his friends killed by Hittites. You know, it's like, the Klingons killed my son. Well, <laughs> you know, same kind of thing. Right. And in fact, we know that Heb on his tomb, on his tomb walls, after he became pharaoh, Horemheb had had pictures of him killing lots of Hittites on the tomb wall. So he takes pride in having, you know, attacked Hittites. However even though it doesn't prove King Tut was murdered, it does show that the key figures, I and Horemheb, were willing to use lethal force to achieve their ends, including attacking a royal even when it would lead to war. So they could have attacked their own royal to achieve their end. Really, though, the things that most suggest the murder theory are centered around Anka The fact that she confessed to a foreign king that she was afraid, you know, that suggests more than a forced marriage or an undesirable marriage to a servant. That suggests she's afraid for her life. The radical action of appealing to a foreign enemy to avoid marrying Ai, her exclusion from Tut's tomb illustrations while Ai is already depicting himself as pharaoh. And then there's what happened to Anka next. What did happen to Ankasanaman next? She vanished from history. Now we know she married I. This is proved both by the fact that I became Pharaoh and by a couple of rings that we found uh, that bear the names of I and Ankasanaman in royal cartouches. They have these double cartouches, one with the king's name, one with the queen's name. And so that shows that they were the reigning monarchs at the time. Uh, one of these uh, is known as the Newberry Ring, was found it was by a guy named Newberry in 1931. His name was Percy Newberry. He found it in an antique shop in Cairo and, and he sketched it, which is how we know what it looked like. And he wrote a letter, I think it was to Sir Flinders Petrie, who was a famous early 20th century Egyptologist, asking a question about it. But he didn't have the money on him at the moment to buy the ring and so he couldn't buy it. He just sketched it. And subsequently, the ring was apparently sold, and it's in some private collection somewhere, and we don't know where it is. But a second ring with the royal cartouches of I and Ankasanaman was discovered and is now being held in a museum in Berlin. So we have hard archaeological evidence of you know there were rings like this made to commemorate the wedding of these two royals but these are the last times ankhsenamun is mentioned in history she is not found on the walls of ay's tomb by rights she should be his chief wife she's the one who made him pharaoh and he doesn't even put her on the walls of his tomb, suggesting that she was dead by this point. And it had to happen quickly. And not only is she dead, he doesn't really like her. Because yeah, he could have depicted her as well as another wife who he had. But he only reigned about three or four years. So if she's not on the tomb walls three or four years later, it's because she died quickly. And she was not given a decent burial. We have not found any funeral goods with her name on them. She's just that mummy that we found in KV-21, but did not have any funerary objects associated with her. There is a wife depicted on I's tomb walls. So he does he does credit himself as having a wife and a and someone he likes and wants to be with in the afterlife. Her name is Tay or Tai, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And we know about her from other records. She had been his wife for a long time. So she was already his wife way before Ankasanaman. There's a complication in the fact, remember I said Horemheb, when he became Pharaoh, he defaced the monuments of I, because he really didn't like him for some reason. Well, that included the tomb. So if you go into the tomb of I, he's chipped off the images of I. I mean, you can still see the outlines, but he's chipped off the images of I and he's chipped off the names in the cartouches. But we can still see, okay, this is the king, there's where the picture of the king was, this is his cartouche, this is the picture of the queen, this is her cartouche. And because Ty is a much shorter name than Akhenaten, name length becomes relevant here, we can tell this, is, this originally was Queen Tai. She was the one who he depicted on his walls not Ankasanaman. So when you think about this, he had to marry her. It was months, months af- after Tut died because they had all that correspondence with with the Hittites. Then he marries her before or after he kills Prince Ananza, who's coming to be Pharaoh, and then she mysteriously dies, and he doesn't even have the decency to depict her on his tomb walls or give her a decent burial to secure her immortality. So it's quite possible. That we're not looking at one murder here, or even two, but three. I may, uh, yeah, we may have murders for Tut, Zananza, and Anka Because remember, she's a young woman too. Yep. She's she's like 20 years old. So if if Tut was killed, if he if was murdered, what would be, have been the motive? Well, the two logical suspects on the principle of Cui Bono who benefits, the obvious suspects are I and Horemheb. It could have been both. They could have been conspirators in this, although maybe not, because Horemheb really didn't seem to like I, not the way he defaced his monuments. So it may have just all been I, and Horemheb was kind of carrying out orders on some stuff. In fact, we have evidence that um, that Horemheb, even though he does later become prince, he... Actually, had some affection for Tut because on his on his tomb walls he actually talks about how I could calm Tut down when he was angry. So that suggests he had like kind of a personal bond with that Horam Heb could that Horam Heb did. Yeah. yeah, so he doesn't really seem to have a strong motive. He did have a motive for killing Zananza, but he doesn't have a, a strong motive for killing Tut. After all, it's not him who's going to become pharaoh if Tut dies. It's going to be I. He's he's the fl- the flunky at this point. But I does have a motive. He had been the chief official of Akhenaten, so even during Akhenaten's reign, when everything was going to hack, he was the one running the show. He's been in control, and then he and he this new king comes along. Tut, he's the power behind the throne. He's effectively been running. He's the unofficial pharaoh. He's been that for decades, and he's never had credit for it. But now his power is slipping away because now Tut is a young man. He's old enough to start making his own decisions. He's probably becoming more assertive. He's in his teenage years. And you know what teenage drama is like? He's (laughs) probably having a rebellious stage and is asserting his own authority, which fits in with Heb's tomb carvings about how I was the one that could calm him down when he got angry. Just think about it. This is like, you know, the uh, It's a Good Life episode of of uh, the Twilight Zone with Bill Mumy, mm-hmm. the little boy wishing people into the cornfield. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. Well, Tut is the equivalent of that in ancient Egypt. Right. He's the God ruler. You know, he is a living teenage God. <laughs> and so if you're the one who can calm him down, that's pretty special. You know, <laughs> it, again, I, I mentioned Game of Thrones earlier.
0: If you are a mm-hmm. Game of Thrones watcher, he's essentially Joffrey, uh, who, oh. uh, is mm-hmm. was the teenage uh, ruler king who was an evil little jerk <laughs> that everyone okay. was so happy to see was killed by uh, the people around him, by his advisor. So uh, very interesting. I wonder if George R. R. Martin was inspired by King Tut. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Uh-
1: and I have not seen Game of Thrones, so I'll take yeah. your word on all that. So anyway, you put yourself in I's perspective. Tut is getting obnoxious and assertive, and he's going to be able to making his own decisions. You're on your way out, buddy. You know he could have you executed if he wanted. Also, you've been running this country for all this time, and they've started to have children. Now they've miscarried both, and they were little girls so far. But if they have another child and it's a boy, That's the successor. You will never be Pharaoh if that happens. And so you can imagine at I deciding at some point, either before or after Tut's death, I deserve to be Pharaoh and I'm going to be ruthless in pursuing this. I'm willing to assassinate a prince. I start a war and start a war. I also am willing to depict myself as pharaoh even before I am in these tomb paintings. I that's how ruthless and certain I am of what's going to happen here. And so in view of all of this, in view of that ruthlessness and all of the surrounding circumstances, it is quite plausible that I had decided before Tut died that he should be pharaoh and he then quite plausibly used that ruthlessness to do Tut in. So if Tut was killed, we talked about what would have been the motive. So we have to go on to the next thing. What would have been the means? As I said, originally it was thought it might have been a a blow to the back of the head. But that is, you know, there are claims, at least, that that's now been disproved. And it may have been. Um, I'm not an expert. I haven't seen the detailed studies, so I can't really say. It could have been, though, some other form of physical abuse. Note that we have a break in the thigh bone, which people say is, was caused shortly before his death, even though the mummy's in bad condition. Well, someone could have hit him with a chariot. You know, Horemheb could have said to a slave, I want you to accidentally run him over and I will protect you afterward. Or I could have said that to someone directly without going through Horemheb. Someone could have pushed him down. You know, they could have smothered him with a pillow. That wouldn't show traces on a mummy. He's physically frail anyway. So he so those are possibilities. Also, a classic means of killing people in the ancient world and getting away with it was poison. That was the classic way of doing people in so he didn't have to take responsibility. Oh, he just fell over and died. So sad. I'm king now. (laughs) Now, the question would then be, how would they have done it? Well, from what I've read, Most of the poisons the Egyptians knew about, and of course they knew about them because everybody knows about poisons historically, most of the poisons they knew about tasted really bitter. So they might have tried hiding it in some really spicy food or something, or they could have just forced it down his throat. Another possibility, snake venom, because they've got cobras in Egypt. You know, they're snake charmers. They're snake charmers in Egypt today. And snakes but yeah, why asks, did it have asks. to be snakes <laughs> yeah. they i mean even in exodus you know they mentioned the uh they mentioned the magicians of pharaoh who turned their staffs into snakes you know they presumably had charmed them and then threw them on the ground so they woke up and then moses's staff eats theirs up this you know they definitely had venomous snakes and either with a snake oh look a snake bit him so sorry or using snake venom that they put in something they could have killed him that way so there are there are multiple ways that they could have killed him that are consistent with the evidence we have at this point so are there ways that we could get more evidence there are now you occasionally hear about people doing autopsies of the, of the body really no one's done a full autopsy these are just partial things like we took it out and we did a cat scan or something and they'll that'll get trumpeted in the press as autopsy but it's not a full autopsy And all of the all of the studies that have been done so far have focused just on the mummy. But that's not all the biological material we have. Remember Smenkari's canopic coffins? Well, they've got Tut's internal organs in them. So let's look at the internal organs. You could find, you know, evidence, for example, of poison in them, depending on the type of the poison. If it was a metallic poison like arsenic, it would still be there. Mm -hmm. Arsenic doesn't decay into something else it's not normal isotopes of arsenic are not radioactive. And even the even the ones that might be would decay into something else we could identify as, oh, this used to be arsenic 3,300 years ago. So that would be a possibility. Also, things like if you look at his stomach and intestines, is there any food in there? If there is, then he didn't die in a coma because he was still eating. If there's no food in there, he died in a coma. Because, of course, there's no way to intravenously feed people. Right. Exactly. Also, you could do a detailed examination of the outside of the body, even though it's damaged, you can look for snake bite. And no one, as far as I know, has looked for that. So there are there are ways we could continue to gather more evidence that might allow us to decide this one way or another.
0: So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the this question was it was King
1: Tut murdered? You'll hear a lot of people very confidently saying, oh, he definitely died this way or that way or some other way. But the truth is, we don't know. Uh, the mummy is not in great condition and the right studies have not been done yet. But based on all the evidence, including the extraordinary sequence of events that happened after his death, we really need to look at the murder possibility seriously. Also, just to end on a on a happy note, even though Prince Zenanza was killed and that started a war, there was eventually peace again between the Egyptians and the Hittites. Uh, Sixty-five years later, in the 19th dynasty, in the reign of Ramses II, who may be the pharaoh of the Exodus or maybe not, a major peace treaty was signed between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Uh, The uh, the we have copies of it. We don't have the original copy. The original copy was written on silver tablets. The Hittites wrote it on silver and sent it to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were so taken because silver was in Egypt was even rarer than gold. And so they got these silver tablets from the from the Hittites and they then copied it onto like the temple walls. And so we know what the treaty said. And uh, and we also know the celebrations that followed And they talk about the celebrations and how you had Egyptians and Hittites sitting down to eat together without fighting. And how amazing is that? We sat down and we ate with them and we didn't kill each other. Yay. But there's
0: hope for many of the family Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah. (laughs) If the the Egyptians and Hittites can sit down and break bread together. So uh, what are the further resources you'd like to uh, mention to people if they want to find out more about all this?
1: So I always recommend uh, Bob, Cor- Bob Breyer's Great Courses, History of Ancient Egypt. It is awesome. Also, he's got a book specifically on this. It's available in heart- in paperback and in Kindle, so you can download it and read it or have it read to you by your Kindle device. It's called The Murder of Tutankhamun. So uh, check that out. You'll find a lot more context for all this. Also, we'll have the Wikipedia article on King Tut. We'll have a link to a skeptical article that's against the murder theory that used to be on National Geographic's website. This was an article that was published after they discovered the break in his leg. And so they were trumpeting the idea that he died because of a broken leg. But it's not on their website anymore. So I think they may have retracted it. At least I haven't. I looked for it and could not find it on their website. Also, a uh, a short video on the chariot accident reconstruction where they've used computer animation to show how a chariot could have struck him to cause the injuries that the mummy has.
0: All right. That's good. So go check that out, everyone. Uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback. We love getting your feedback. And so we have some feedback this week on our Copper Scroll episode we did, the, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Sean Kennedy writes on YouTube, a slight variation
1: on your scam thought. Maybe it was. So So that was a proposal I made that the Copper School was a scam to cheat the Qumran community out of money by promising them buried treasure if they bought this treasure map.
0: Right, right. So Sean says maybe it was a scam by the leaders of the Qumran community. The thing that came to my mind after you said it was a scam was something that was suggested to me after I opened my martial arts school. A friend suggested that I go to a trophy maker and buy a bunch of trophies for the window to attract customers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fraudulent, awarding trophies to yourself fraudulently to get customers. (laughs) Hey,
0: so maybe the leaders of the Qumran community made this treasure map to assure new converts that the religion isn't going anywhere and has the funds to continue indefinitely. Just, you know, it's buried for your safety. We will protect your investments, um, your contribution.
1: <laughs> uh, it's it's a fascinating uh, twist on that theory. I had not thought of that, and certainly there are people who would do exactly that. Uh, who would, you know, come up with this as a way of, of of you know encouraging confidence in people in making donations as they joined the community. On the other hand, the primary motivation for joining was always religious. And these guys were really strict and very concerned about purity. That's what a lot of their disputes with the 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 Pharisees and the Sadducees were, is these guys are not pure enough. And so since fanatical zealotry about purity and eschatology were the main reasons for joining the sect, I don't know that they would have needed to make the copper scroll to go to the effort of putting it on copper as a convincer. To get people to think that their donations would be safe,
0: right? It would have to be that the, the entire community itself was a scam to begin with, and I'm not sure there's enough evidence that Qumran itself was a it was a religious yeah. scam. They
1: they wouldn't have gone to all the effort they did. Uh, you know, they, it's clear the m- vast majority of their members had to be sincere, and also it was a personal sacrifice. You weren't you were giving up the mo- you were giving up all your worldly possessions anyway. You were joining a monastery. So do you really need to say, oh, and we'll bury them to keep them safe if you're not getting them back anyway?
0: Uh, And then our other comment uh, comes from Lauren on Facebook, who said, please say more about not pooping on the Sabbath. Yeah. So this
1: was one of the crazy rules that the Qumran community apparently had. You weren't allowed to poop on the Sabbath. I assume from that, that on the day before the Sabbath, the day of preparation, that they may have fasted or... (laughs) otherwise eaten very little to clear out the system. They might have on the day of preparation or the day before the day of preparation, they may have eaten foods known to induce uh, peristalsis, to try to work it all through the system so you don't have to go on the Sabbath. Or there was a very long line at the bathrooms on Monday or Sunday
0: in this case. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But that apparently was one of their rules. And I'm so glad that Christians are not bound by rules of the ceremonial law, and especially (laughs) not the crazy elaboration of the ceremonial law that the Qumraners had. Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) But we'll probably not go into any more detail on that one. I think that's about enough. (laughs) That's enough. Yes. Those aforementioned uh, little boys would probably laugh uh, even more, but uh, (laughs) we'll leave leave them be. So uh, what do we have for mysterious headlines, Jimmy? I'm sure on things about Egypt.
1: Yeah, so uh, the first one is two mummies discovered in one 5,000, two mummies in one coffin have been discovered in a 5,000-year-old cemetery. Hmm. And because it's 5,000 years old, that means it dates to 3,000 BC. So that's Old Kingdom. That's when the pyramids were built. So this is way earlier than Tut's time. Now, there are also mummies from later in history in the same cemetery, but... That's how old the cemetery is. Some of the stuff goes back all the way to the to the old kingdom and the time of the pyramids. Then, even before the first the old kingdom, the, our second link that we'll have is to an article about a village that was discovered that is in Egypt that is seven thousand years old. Wow! So this is pre dynastic Egypt. It's before the time of the pharaohs. It's five thousand BC. So pre-Old Kingdom. And we dug it up and there's stuff to learn about it. So check out that link too. Cool.
0: I want to make sure that we take a moment to thank the people who make this show possible. I mean, this is a fascinating discussion of King Tut. I mean, you know, and where else would you hear this sort of detail and sort of interesting theory? And so
1: there are people that you, the listener, should thank while we're thanking them for making it possible. By the way, I I, I want to mention, uh, I know we've gone long on this one, and I kind of hesitate to go long on these things. I, I like to keep them shorter than this. But whenever you see one of these and it's long, that means I'm really excited about it. And there's a lot to say, and it's going to be <laughs> extra fascinating. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, to keep an eye on that link. But
0: but the only way we can do this and have these this, such depth that Jimmy goes into is because we have people who are supporting us financially, that the ability to make these shows requires that we have a uh, uh, people like me who are on, uh, uh, staff. That's who are on we, staff. That's what I do for a living uh, is is make these shows, and so we only do this because you support us, and so we're very grateful. And I wanted to you know thank by name this week: Darius M, Gary H, Mike KJ, uh, Hector M, and Karen M. Uh, hopefully, I got that right, Mike. I'm sorry if that if I mistyped that, uh, but. It's through their generous donations and, and everyone who supports us financially at sqpn.com slash give that makes it possible for us to create Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the great shows we're creating here at StarQuest Media. Uh, and if you'd like to join them, if it's possible for you to, to do so, please visit sqpn.com slash give and, uh, and, and do what you can. There's, there's all information there on how to do that. So that's it from us. What did you think of? this very interesting story, this ancient Egyptian game of thrones about the possible murder of King Tut. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can leave feedback there on YouTube. Uh, you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send us a tweet using the hashtag of uh, the hashtag mysterious feedback, all one word. Don't put any spaces in. Mysterious we will find it if you put it, use that hashtag. Uh, and we'll, we'll, in a future show, we'll maybe d- discuss your comment. Remember to like the show if you can on social media, especially on our Facebook page and to retweet it on Twitter. That helps, uh, the, goose the algorithms and gets it in front of more people that helps us grow the audience. We really do appreciate you helping us get the word out. And as always, you can find the links to the further resources that Jimmy mentioned from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. So, Jimmy, tell me, what are we
1: talking about next week? So uh, next week is a fifth Friday, and we produce four episodes a month. But on fifth Fridays, we use... Weird Questions Hours from Catholic Answers Live. So we're going to have a new Weird Questions edition. We're going to be looking at questions like, do some medieval paintings show UFOs with spacemen in them? Is that in religious art from the Middle Ages? Can a priest or the Pope bless an entire ocean and make it holy water? What would the implications of artificial intelligence be? Can you lie to a Cyberman? And other fascinating, weird questions.
0: On Catholic Answers, Jimmy does these 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 shows where he kind of does what we do here in Mysterious World, but does it a bit more rapid fire and covers a lot more ground in, in that. So that's always that's that's a fun extra that we do when we have a fifth Friday in a month. So I'm looking forward to that. So until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our Mysterious World. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.